Welcome to the Woody Report. This podcast, Washington and Lee School of Law Professor Karen Woody and host Tom Fox discuss issues on white-collar crime, compliance, international corruption, securities law and accounting fraud, and internal corporate investigations. From current events to topical issues to academic research and thought leadership, Karen Woody helps lead the discussion on these issues on this new and exciting podcast. The Woody Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we broaden out the group of participants on the Woody Report to include Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly. Karen talks about the early part of Elon Musk's attempts to acquire Twitter and his machinations that he engaged in prior to his initially turning down a board seat on Twitter. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the Woody Report. Karen Woody, you have been a securities law practitioner and now you're a securities law professor. Can you tell us about the gift that keeps on giving? I was going to say, I I wonder if there's such a thing as podcast malpractice for not talking about Elon today. I mean, or just honestly, just being a citizen of the world. I mean, the whole world is talking about this guy and maybe for good reason, you know, but who knows? He is the gift that keeps on giving. I call him a walking um, law school exam because every single day there's a new headline. I think, oh, that's a great exam prompt because it's another you know, can of worms were opening. Just last week, I gave a lecture about everything he had done up until last week. And now we have a whole new week, a whole new set of facts, whole new set of circumstances that force us to take a look at what Elon is up to. Um, So I don't really even know how to get my arms around where to start or what aspect of this to talk about. I mean, maybe in addition to the gift that keeps on giving, he's should be also deemed the man who has launched a thousand lawsuits because that's what we're after here. So which lawsuit should we talk about today? Today, I kind of want to think about the one um, that actually does go to his uh, activity last week about his filings with the SEC, um, about saying he was, you know, had more than 5% stake. We now see people have filed a lawsuit about the potential um, insider trading really that's happening there. So for anyone who has been on vacation for a week or under a rock, last week, Elon Musk announced that he had um, a a 9.1% stake in Twitter. And there was a whole lot of problems around that announcement. The first was which he initially filed it on a 13G disclosure, which said that he was going to be a passive investor, uh, which that was one problem because he's not a passive investor. The other problem about that filing is that he missed the deadline of filing that. So again, if anyone has been kind of under a rock here, the minute you have a 5% stake in a company, you need to disclose that to the SEC. Um, It's why most people are sort of lurking in the waters at 4.9%. And when you hit five, the the clock starts ticking and you have a 10-day disclosure window. Uh, Ironically or not ironically, the SEC just in February passed a proposal um, trying to shorten that window because it's an obscene amount of time before you actually have to disclose. That 10-day window is when typically activist investors make sure when they disclose 10 days after crossing the 5% threshold, 
that that disclosure looks way north of 5%. I mean, that's sort of the game there. You hit five, you hit go, and you get everyone, um, you know, rallied to make sure that when your disclosure comes out, it is as Elon's was, I actually have 9.2%. That's sort of the game. So the fact that everyone acknowledges that that already is a bit of a um, lopsided amount of time that's been, again, bandied around around the SEC. And they finally made a proposal just a few months ago saying we want to close that window or at least shorten it to um, five days. I posit that that's still too long. Um, we're in an instantaneous trading uh, area here. We, we don't need to make sure that people, um, you know, count all the, you know, chips from the, the floor of the, of the uh, trading floor, any of that. Anyway. Point is, Elon misses the deadline by a wild 11 days, despite being a very lawyered up um, individual. So that's the first problem. And then, again, he changes, he amends the um, filing to say, oh, I, I actually am not going to be a passive investor. This I'm going to have a more activist role. So he changes, he fixes that. But the question I think that is an interesting one, again, of the many issues we can discuss, we're not, I'm not even getting to even the takeover bid necessarily at this point. Although, of course, this gets up to that line. But the interesting thing is that in that time period in which he has sat on the fact that he's over the 5% threshold and has the 10 days have lapsed, the lawsuit now that's being filed is saying, well, like, think about how much money it is you are able to trade on and in, 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 essentially an inside, in an inside fashion, meaning once the disclosure comes up, the, I think, shares in Twitter jump $10. I think they're around $39 before he discloses, and then they jump to $49 because of um, that announcement. So when you think about the fact that he is trading and buying a lot of Twitter after his 10-day deadline, you know, he's buying it at that lower price because, you know, however it is um, that he's able to trade in this, the market doesn't yet know that what he's up to. So I think that in itself is a fascinating um, angle to this. The reason it's fascinating is because typically the SEC might not really um, take you to tax. They have a few times in certain um, situations. They're not really going to take you to task all the time on sort of the potential footfall of being late on your 13 filing, uh, section 13 filing. But here they are because what for two reasons. One, it's Elon. There's not they're going to be a day when the SEC is not looking to maybe get uh, Elon, you know, in front of them to really talk to him. They're not necessarily the best of friends these days. So that's one. The SEC is not going to let that one slide because it's Elon. Um, I think that's one major reason. And then the other major reason is exactly what ends up happening here, which is he's late on the filing. So he comes in at 9.2%. And now we are in today's world, which he's now made a takeover bid. He's turned hostile about it after, again, this dance with trying to do uh, a seat on the board and, a, you know, like, stopping any um, additional uh, aggregation of shares. That obviously didn't work. So we're in the situation we are in today. And query how much of the fact that he had that elect that extra 11 days, which maybe, like I say, is just a bit of a filing foot fault, hard to imagine. But that actually does, I think, become a very problematic issue for anything that uh, happens going forward. I know Everyone in the world now is an expert on Elon Musk and on hostile tech takeovers as of today. So I welcome the actual expertise of this panel and others uh, to tell me um, your thoughts about that. Matt, do you have a question or comment for Karen? I, I guess I have a question uh, that I was intrigued that Elon's announced his takeover bid the day after Charlie 
Gasparino on CNN, who is the other overrated blowhard in this world, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> nonetheless, he announced that he that Elon is under investigation by the SEC no, and the Justice Department. That was interesting for me because now it's real. But mm -hmm. I was wondering about, I do think the SEC could certainly make some insider trading market manipulation cases. Elon clearly goes around the world poking fun at the SEC at every opportunity. He gave a TED talk in Vancouver just the other day where he was basically dumping all over the SEC. And I kind of wonder which is his clearly stated attempt and to antagonize the SEC. Does that introduce any sort of criminal liability that the Justice Department is going to get up in his face for any number of reasons for what he's doing? But I mean, he's almost like saying, Worlds come at me. I don't think that's really the wisest thing to do with the Justice Department ever. But what, what's your read on his criminal exposure here, if any? I mean, I absolutely think he has some. I mean, well, 10 B5 already has concurrent, you know, jurisdiction there, and you have to show scienter. So you already are dancing along the, you know, knife edge of criminal civil liability right there. And I, I do think this is one that. Like you say, he's just sort of thumbing his nose at, at all at these regulators, and no one's going to take kindly to that. I think that this would be one that could easily be referred to the Justice Department. Also, in terms of the magnitude of this, this isn't sort of small pennies in terms of the dollar amounts, the actual market manipulation that's occurring here. Uh, I think this is easily one that is that the Justice Department is very much taking a hard hard look at. Jonathan Marks, do you have a question or comment for Karen? Yeah, I'm just wondering how long this has been brewing. And uh, the, all the articles that I've been reading, you know, talking about Twitter going on the defense with their poison pill and the like, I wonder how effective that's really going to be. Um, and so I, I'm just curious as your comments on all of that, because, I mean, it's it, it seems like we're ready for a good down and dirty New York fight. <laughs> that I think it's true. So obviously the board has the Revlon duties to take the best offer when there's uh, a hostile offer thrown out. Um, I, I think there is a decent defense for the board in the sense that uh, Elon himself is such a character and has already threatened to tank the stock. They don't take the offer. And so if the board's defense is like this was not the corporate um, policy or you know the, where we wanted to take this company, this is a completely different direction. Um, this is getting sort of into the weeds, but there's a famous case about the Time Warner merger and Paramount trying to sort of lob an offer in and shake that up. And so the defense that the company ended up winning on, which is Time, was saying, well, no, this is always our plan. We're always heading in this direction, and this is going to be too big of a pivot. So that's why, sure, Paramount came in at a higher number, but for various reasons, we're not going to go that direction. A little bit of a stretch here, especially when Elon's coming in at a high number. Like, how does the board like legitimately keep their fiduciary duties and reject that offer? I think there's somebody who said that like there might be a reason you are protecting the company by not letting that guy take over. I don't know how much that's going to win, but um, and you know, I think they're also running down other options. You know, they've talked about the poison pill. I know Vanguard is in the wings, maybe of you know having a big. There might be a white knight type other situations some someone else will sweep in elon maybe has some financing funding issues here well i mean that's its own 
like I said, which which side of the elephant do we try to even attack in terms of talking about Elon? That's another one. How is he getting this funding? Um, I did have someone suggest that I bet what he'll try to do is make sure this all happens on 420 just to keep everything. <laughs> uh, uh, just really circle that square or whatever. So, I mean, we, we'll see. That's what's, It's the great thing. It's the great, you know, corporate securities law telenovela of, uh, of Elon Musk. <laughs> Karen, uh, let me pick up on one of your last points, because if can a board uh, consider what a sale might do to the company? So if the board uh, considers that he would either destroy the company, he would open it up, which allow um, comments from people as, as diverse as Donald Trump or other right wing groups that could damage the company after the acquisition or the transaction, is that something that the board can consider as well? Yeah. I mean, and when you think about really at base, what a fiduciary duty is, it is putting, you know, the, the best interests of the company first, certainly before their own things like that. And so if you think um, there are factors other than price that dictate, that suggests at least that this is not in the best interest of the company, that's kind of where I was going with this idea of like, this is not the direction the company's going. We don't think this is one that is in the best interest here. That I think is a decent, uh, solid argument um, that I would think even the Delaware courts would entertain. Um, so uh, I, I think that is one. And like I said, and Elon, it, he has a lot of money, but there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of exhibits in that, in that transcript of why he might not be great for um, also running Twitter. So we'll see. <laughs> Jay Rosen, do you have a question or comment? Yeah, Karen, I don't know how this would actually work, but is there some way for the government to step in for the greater good in saying that Twitter is almost like the phone company or it's almost like a utility that we can't allow somebody to monopolize even if they would do it on April 20th? That is an amazing question. Can we nationalize Twitter? Um, I don't, I, don't, I mean, I, wow. I hadn't thought about that angle. I'm trying to think even through how we like eminent domain Twitter or something for a general best interest of national security or, you know, whatever the word. I, it's, a, it's a good argument. I can't imagine uh, that sort of the other side of the aisle would be okay with um yeah, taking a private company and having the government take over it. Uh, but sure, I mean, I, I I can't imagine it's going to happen. But that's a that's a fascinating angle. I mean, I, maybe you could try to say there's some constitutional protection on, but no, it's, no. The answer to that end of the day, it's a private company. Um, I, I don't see that being a winning argument. <laughs> Matt. Yeah. Well. I just wanted to chime in there because uh, that's actually something that Elon has talked about with his um, pseudo claims that under free speech. I do not believe that is true. And I don't believe that he is. But, you know, he has said that Twitter is like a private uh, public square. And so therefore, they should be allowed to say what they want on it, including the likes of Donald Trump and January 6th insurrection extremists and who knows what else. Um, I fundamentally disagree with that whole premise because Twitter is not like the public square. Twitter is like your local community newspaper where people can write in articles and it is privately owned and the private owner publishes it. And the private owner 
is responsible for whatever somebody is whatever under their newspaper. Now, I've been in the newspaper business pretty much my whole life, and I'm very kind of stuff. But um, it is baloney that Twitter censors or anything like this. I've said it before. Companies do not censor. Governments censor. So Twitter is like a giant community newspaper with 300 million subscribers who can all automatically write in and publish their own little take about what's going on in their neighborhood. And, you know, really, if you wanted good governance of Twitter, I would be wholeheartedly in favor of repealing that Section 230 of the Communications Act, uh, where legal liability would attach for what Twitter and Facebook and others are saying on social media. Uh, and you could be sued for allowing people to make impolitic or incorrect or inflammatory or insurrectionist statements. Yeah, all for it, because that's the same thing that newspapers think about every single day, and they have 100 years. I know that's never going to happen, but I also do not think that. Well, I want to take that point, perhaps not as far as eminent domain, but maybe pose in a little bit different way, Karen because I've been thinking about the business roundtables statement on the purpose of a corporation. And in that statement, they expanded the duties of a corporation from beyond simply the shareholders, or as you've articulated the law, which is the fiduciary duty to represent the best interests of the shareholders. There were other stakeholders listed that included customers that included employees that included localities where a business might operate. Uh, it included shareholders. It also included third parties who may do business with an entity. And could this be a, a vehicle or mechanism for us to have that broader debate about what uh, is the purpose of a corporation, um, at least it, perhaps even in the public domain, recognizing that the, the, the fight would be in the courts of law. But could this be a way for us to have that broader discussion? Absolutely. And Twitter, as Matt pointed out, is unique in its purpose uh, and function. And so maybe no better uh, example to, to run with that idea of, you know, and I think, as you said, even Elon himself is sort of trying to tease that out. Um, but it, it, it is an interesting and even to Jay's point, nearly utility to some people. And so maybe that is something that, um, of course, just by nature of what Twitter is, it inherently demands that we consider stakeholders consequences, people certainly that are much go much broader than the shareholders here. And so Karen, I want to end with a completely different direction as this events over the past couple of weeks made securities law, securities law professors and learning about securities law incredibly sexy now. And your profession well, it wasn't it sexy, Tom. <laughs> jump, jump to the top of the law school curriculum, because how can you have more fun? Exactly. Exactly. I hope to see a big uptick in enrollment in my classes now. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Woody Report. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It was to help get the word out about this newest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to link to Karen Woody's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So if you have any questions, uh, you can follow up directly with Karen. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Woody Report.